Hey, I'm your friendly neighborhood Dave Rubin with a quick reminder to subscribe to our channel and click the bell to get notified of our videos. And joining me today is an international best-selling author and journalist, though his greatest claim to fame is now being a three-time returning Rubin Report guest. Douglas Murray, welcome back to the Rubin Report. Very good to be with you again, Dave. Who else has managed three times? Who else has been three times? I believe Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Gad Sad. Oh, this is and, the A-team. Yeah, this is, this is the A-team. Maybe, maybe Sam Harris snuck in there, I'm not sure. Anyway, it is good to have you on, my friend. I wish we were doing this in person, but you're across the pond. How is life across the pond these days? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's all right. Uh, uh, we have our own forms of madness going on here, uh, as you do in America. Um, but uh, broadly speaking, we're still standing, uh, despite all of the politicians' best efforts. All right, now. I want to get into this book because I've read about half of it so far. And as you know, I just wrote my first book and I was reading this going, man, I wish I was a better author because you, my friend, have a way with words. So I've got the book right here. And I always notice that on cable news, when people are going to read something, they put on glasses. I don't wear glasses. These are prop glasses, but I thought I'd put them on so that I look a little smarter as I read this. Because on the inside flap, you have something here that I thought just summed up almost every reason that I do this show and talk about these issues and, and love what you do. Uh, it says, we're living through a postmodern era in which the grand narratives of religion and political ideology have collapsed. In their place have emerged a crusading desire to right perceived wrongs and a weaponization of identity, both accelerated by the new forms of social and news media. Narrow sets of interests now dominate the agenda as society becomes more and more tribal, and as Murray shows, the casualties are mounting. Now I'm going to slowly take off my glasses. How was that? That was pretty good, right? I'm like, Unbelievable. I'm like Anderson Cooper. No. That, that little synopsis right there, uh, I think, is exactly what's on everyone's mind these days, that a, a small few have somehow taken over all of the narratives. So I guess my first question would be, when, when do you think this all started? I, I think it's a phenomenon of the last decade. I think that it starts in earnest after the financial crash of 2008. You know, we, 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 when we look back at history, uh, causes of revolutions and so on, we, we, we know that when the economics goes bad, other things happen. And I think that we pretend at the moment as if the crash sort of didn't happen or didn't have an effect in our culture. And of course it did, of course something like that's going to. And I say uh, in the introduction to the madness of crowds, you know, it's not a surprise that young people who can't accumulate capital, capital in their lives don't have any particular love of capitalism. Uh, and it's not surprising that uh, a generation that finds it incredibly hard to get on the property ladder, for instance, is going to be susceptible to ideologies that claim to be able to solve every inequity on earth. Uh, so my view is that, that, that when the economics goes bad, we become vulnerable to bad ideas. And the ones I write about in The Madness of Crowds, uh, I think these ideas have been gestating since at least the uh, 1980s. Uh, these things that we now know as identity politics, intersectionality, possibly the ugliest word in the language. And, uh, and these, have been, these have been hanging around uh, since about the 80s. 
but they only come flooding in in the last decade. And then in the last five years, as you, you can prove, and I lay out some of it in the book, in the last five years, that's when all this stuff actually became weaponized. Yeah. And when it started to be used as a real battering ram. All right. So first off, thank you for actually saying the title of the book. That was very unprofessional of me. It is called The Madness of Crowds. You are correct right there. Um, so that's, a, that's an interesting theory that you've laid out, that basically these ideas, these sort of bad ideas and, and totalitarian ideas, that they've been sitting there, but it takes something else, in this case an economic crash, to bring them up to the fold. So you think if, if the crash had not happened, you think that basically would have been a, a buffer to just kind of keep these ideas under our normal layer of discourse? Well, I think so. I mean, the, you know, it, it's, it's been on my mind for many years, as I've noticed this sort of intrusion into the public space of these ideas and of these weaponized identity groupings, of people being used against each other, you know, gay people seeming to be used for something to hit straight people, and uh, um, people of different races being used against each other, and women being used against men, you know, this sort of, this horrible thing we've been through in recent years so many times. And uh, yeah, I, I, when I started looking into the intellectual origins of some of this, I sort of assumed that uh, there were serious texts, and that these these uh, these uh, these ideas came from a serious place. And I was sort of stunned when I started looking into it that really um, it's it's a lot of assertions that are being made in these texts. You know, there's a famous uh, foundational text of intersectionality called "Unpacking the Knapsack," yeah. "Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack." And I sort of thought this by a professor at Wellesley. I sort of thought, well, well, this must be some kind of serious, you know, attempt at something. I might be wrong, but no, it's it's not. It's a few pages of assertions, and that started to make me particularly interested because I thought, well, how did how did a few assertions by one Wellesley academic become a sort of one of the bases? for something that is now being tried out everywhere. And and the real shock to me as I was researching this book was this isn't just, you know, it broke out from these sort of liberal arts colleges like, you know, Wellesley and a, a few sort of places like Berkeley uh, and Judith Butler and this sort of stuff. It broke out from there, but we now see it being flooding through, among other things, the corporate world. And that was a huge, uh, uh, um, I mean, I'm just amazed at the extent to which this has gone through that now. I mean, you know this, but but the only people who don't think that this stuff is coming towards them are people who are basically self-employed and don't have much connection with other people uh, in an office or anything. But everybody else knows that through human resources departments, commitments to diversity, all of this sort of thing, uh, this is all coming for them. And I'm just I'm just amazed, as I say, that a set of ideas, which is we'll come on to it, are, are provably wrong, are provably not going to work uh, and contradictory, self-contradictory. It's just amazing to me that this should have flooded through governments, corporations, as if it's something that might work when it can't. When you were doing the research for the book and you found some of these documents, which as you're talking about, the genesis of intersectionality, it's a couple pages, basically. Um, in a weird way, would you have preferred to have found a solid foundation to argue against? You know, something that even if you disagreed with all of the outcomes, that you would have been able to fight in sort of like an even way as opposed to fighting something that because it's not foundational, you're just kind of fighting all over the place. Right. That, that that's what I assumed. I thought I thought this is going to require some, you know, serious delving and so on. And and I 
I just I say I, I, I was amazed at this. Uh, that, that, that what's more, I mean, I mean, you know, the academia bit in a way is is the most sort of tedious part of it for obvious reasons because once this breaks into the pop culture world, for instance, you know, then it, then it becomes, we're talking about mass mass entertainment and, and indeed I think mass derangement when some of these ideas go into the pop cultural world world. But 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 these are these claims made, the foundational claims, are among other things written in the type of academic jargon that is so bad that it's clear that it is prose intended only to do one of two things. The first is to hide a meaning because there isn't one. And the second one is to write this badly because the author knows that what they're saying isn't true and they're trying to cover over the fact. But I mean, I, I, mean, I give examples and, and I did the audio book for, for this book. And I mean, just reading some of them out <laughs> aloud. I mean, I, I kept corpsing uh, uh, in the sound booth because I mean, they are such ridiculously badly written texts. And uh, um, and as I say, I, I mean, I, I give examples, but this this is a real this is fraudulence on a massive scale. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into it. And there, there, one of the beauties of the book actually is the way you lay it out is such simplicity. And in fact, you really only have four chapters here, which then you have some interludes for. But it's really four main ideas. But I'm going to put my fake glasses on for just one more moment here because I want to read. Uh, the two quotes at the beginning of the book, because I feel you've, you started us off beautifully here. You say, it's, uh, this is a quote, the special mark of the modern world is not that it is skeptical, but that it is dogmatic without knowing it. That's G.K. Chesterton. And then uh, this next one, oh my gosh, look at her butt. Oh my gosh, look at her butt. Oh my gosh, look at her butt. Look at her butt. Look at it, look at it, look at it. Look at her butt by Nicki Minaj. And Minaj. And Minaj. Yeah. Douglas, um, why those two quotes? If you've been listening to the financial news lately, you've probably heard about the recent gold rush. In the past year, gold's value has increased 28%, hitting a six-year record high. I want money with real value. That's why I'm thinking about acquiring gold coins. Government.com is offering a limited number of $10 gold liberties in uncirculated condition at an unbelievably low price. Struck from US gold, this money has value you can weigh in your hand and American history you can hold. Now is the time to buy. With a limited supply, government can only offer three per household. To secure coins at this exceptional government price, call government at 1-888-201-7067 and get a free gold guide just for calling. You support our show and you support our sponsors. Write this down or put it into your phone now because the only way you can get this special offer is to call 1-888-201-7067 to secure your coins and receive a free gold guide. Call 1-888-201-7067. And now back to the show. <laughs> and now I'm putting the glasses away, my friend. Yeah, that's that's the epigraph page. I uh, I sort of thought it 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 did it signaled what I was planning to do and what I hope I have done in the book, uh, uh, which is in part to just show people uh, what's going on. Um, uh, I go in in the chapter in women. I I, I go into the issue of uh, Miss Minaj, uh, but uh, yeah, well, but, let, yeah, let's hold that for a second. Yeah, the G.K. Chesterton uh, uh, quote. It seems to me incredibly uh, apposite to the point I'm trying to make, you know, that, that, 
that we have an extraordinary set of dogmas in our time. Uh, we're as dogmatic as any age, but it requires, I think, you know, somebody to step back and say, what are the dogmas? And I, uh, I, I just have decided that it was worth putting them down in the four that I see uh, uh, most closely. Uh, gay, which is the first chapter, women, the second, the third is race, and the fourth is, tr is trans. And uh, we we basically, if I could sum up what I'm trying to do with this in a nutshell, it's that I think we are pretending to know about things we don't know about. And we're pretending not to know about things we all knew till yesterday. And this, these two things simultaneously are one of the reasons why our societies are dementing ourselves. We pretend to be exceptionally sure about things like trans, for instance, mm -hmm. when we really don't know very much at all about it. And I lay out, you know, I lay out the most plausible, decent, reasonable case for saying what in the, what in this claim, these rights claims is is legitimate and something we need to think about. And what is it that's just dementing? So, so that's an example of something we pretend to be really sure about and we just don't know almost anything about. Yeah. And then there are things that we really do know a lot about or used to know a lot about till yesterday, like relations between the sexes, which we pretend are, are like total mysteries to us. So, okay, so I love that, that, as I said, four chapters, and it's, it's just so simple. It's gay, women, um, what and trans? Race. Gay? Uh, race and trans, thank you. Um, okay, so let's just start gay. That's the title, that's it. No cheeky titles, no nothing, just gay, three letters. So yep. I think most people watching this uh, want gay people to live equally under the law, and that is the way it is in pretty much every Western society. Uh, but what you talk about here is that's not really what the gay movement is sort of about anymore, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that in each of these cases, there's an argument that what we're going through is a kind of overcorrection in some way. Uh, uh, I, I would suggest that there's always been a problem in every rights movement of knowing when you've got to equal and when some people have overshot. So my view is that a lot of people don't like equal, actually. They want to go to better. This is really painful stuff. But the extent to which being gay can be presented as if it's actually a bit better than being straight. Uh, uh, being being black is not just about being equal; it's it's a bit better than being white. And I get into that in the race chapter, you know. And 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 the example with women is, you know, the the, the, the what Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, did. You know, that that women. She says the financial crash, crash at uh, Lehman Brothers might not have happened if it had been Lehman Sisters, as if women are absolutely equal to men and also a bit better. Now, <laughs> I think this is a very dangerous overcorrection in the right swing. And with gay, it's it's got a lot of a lot of unpleasant connotations which I go into in the book which I think were there and I trace where they were from the beginning of the gay rights movement. And I, I particularly I go into one thing which uh, I don't think anyone's written about before, which is what I describe as the divide between gay and queer. And I say that, that gay is just, you know, people who are attracted to members of their own sex, like, like both you and I happen to be. Uh, uh, we're somewhat overrepresented in this conversation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's very heteronormative, our conversations, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. You, see, you, you see, being gay is, is not very interesting beyond that. But there's, there's, a, there's a divide that was always there within the gay rights movement, which was between people who are gay and people who are queer and queer as i as i uh, describe it is 
people who think that being attracted to a member of their own sex is, is, is merely the first stage for a bigger campaign, such as, for instance, bringing down uh, uh, the society or, <laughs> or, or, or uh, queering uh, the society or, or bringing down capitalism or, or something like this. And, and I'm amazed that this hasn't been sort of focused on before because actually a lot of the pain that has come from parts of the gay rights movement over the years has been precisely the people who didn't do gay. They were doing queer. They were using gay as merely the first thing to do a bigger political project. And that's common in each of these chapters. There's each of them. There is a group trying to do something like that. So then what do we call the gays who are not trying to destroy Western civilization and the patriarchy? The gays like us? Are, we're just gay? That's it? That's so boring. Is there? A, did you come up with a better word? Come on. No, I'm sticking with gay on this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 but but it's it's a very important thing to identify. It was always there. It was there at Stonewall onwards. It was there before, indeed, that. Uh, and it's been, and in recent years, there's something very interesting that's happened with the remaining bit of the gay rights uh, uh, sort of groups, which is that they they have become uh, uh, um, vulnerable to what I I. I I describe as St. George in retirement syndrome. You know, uh, uh, the St. George, after slaying the dragon and getting the acclaim of slaying the dragon, uh, staggers around the land looking for ever more dragons to slay and can't find them or find smaller and smaller beasts and eventually may be found swinging his sword at thin air. And um, it, it, with the uh, with the remainders of, for instance, the gay press, this is what they're doing. They wish they'd been at Stonewall. They wish that they'd been fighting back in the day. Some of them did, but they they get addicted to the the barricade manner, and that's why we have these very strange thing. And I I really I go straight for them on this. Uh, uh, why it's turned out that, for instance, the gay press that remains is basically a sort of weird social justice warrior campaigning thing. So so much so that. Just this uh, past week, uh, 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 when my book came out, the main gay magazines in America and Britain attacked me uh, uh, for misgendering Sam Smith, the pop singer who came out as as non-binary. And I said, I, uh, well, my view is, which is, I don't think there's any such thing as non-binary. I think it's to say, I think it's it's just absolutely impossible to, to to determine what the difference is between saying you're non-binary and just shouting, "Look at me." And uh, I think that's what he did. And I said so. And I said, I'm not doing they, them. I'm not doing all this, all this crap. And uh, both both uh, sides of the Atlantic, the gay, the, the legacy gay press uh, uh, said, you know, right wing maniac Murray, you know, <laughs> outrageously misgenders Sam Smith on radio show, all making sure they didn't mention that I myself am gay. And and, and the best part my words. Well, the best part of the whole thing, forget that they don't mention you're gay, right? Because they want to take away your gay card. But that the, uh, unless this happened more than once, I saw the video clip of the radio show that you were doing and the woman you were arguing against or having the conversation with, she kept saying that you have to use his proper pronouns. So in yes. in her own sentence, she was yes. misgendering him. Yes, she she accused me of bullying him for, for not using his, his uh, correct pronouns because of course I'm in a great position to bully a multi-million Pound earning pop star, anyhow. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but she, you were bullying him, not like, bullying they. That's right. No, no, this woke stuff is harder than it looks. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, um, but but you know, it, as I say, this is an example of it. That basically, the legacy gay press doesn't have much to do other than attack uh, gays who it thinks are uh, are letting the side down by not being woke enough or social justice warrior enough. And I just have boundless contempt for these people. 
This episode of The Rubin Report comes to you with support from our friends over at Bravo Company Manufacturing. In the Second Amendment, the Founding Fathers guaranteed an individual the right to protect themselves. Owning a rifle is an awesome responsibility and building rifles is no different. Started in a garage by a Marine veteran more than two decades ago, Bravo Company Manufacturing, or BCM for short, builds a professional grade product which is built to combat standards. This is because BCM believes that the same level of protection should be provided to every American regardless if they're a private citizen or a professional. Bravo Company Manufacturing is not a sporting arms company. They design, engineer, and manufacture life-saving equipment. BCM assumes that when a rifle leaves their shop, it'll be used in a life-or-death situation by a responsible citizen, law enforcement officer, or a soldier overseas, so quality is of utmost value to them. Every component of a BCM rifle is hand-assembled and tested by Americans in Heartland, Wisconsin to a life-saving standard. BCM has always put people before products. They build their products because they feel it's their moral responsibility as Americans to provide tools that will not fail the end user when it's not just a paper target, but someone coming to do them harm. Because of this, BCM knows that making a reliable, life-saving tool is only half the story. They also work with leading instructors of marksmanship from top levels of America's Special Operations Forces. To learn more about Bravo Company Manufacturing, head on over to bravocompanymfg.com where you can discover more about their products, special offers, and upcoming news. That's bravocompanymfg.com. Need more convincing? Find out even more about BCM and the awesome people who make their products at youtube.com slash bravocompanyusa. And now back to the show. There's a couple other interesting things that have happened through an American lens on this. Did you happen to see that right now, Pete Buttigieg, who is openly gay, um, is starting to, to feel the wrath of exactly what you're talking about? Because I've seen now the queer magazines or whatever it is say he's just a heteronormative man who doesn't yeah. identify with being queer. He happens to be married to a man. He has sex with a man, I assume. But that's not good enough, even for him, who's basically a progressive. They still want the him to live under the boot. That's right. Well, well, there's there's a, a I give an example in each chapter of where we see the nakedly political nature of these movements now. Uh, the example, uh, another example before this week, one that I give in the book is uh, Peter Thiel, yep. uh, Silicon Valley uh, tech entrepreneur and billionaire who. Uh, uh, is denounced by Advocate uh, magazine, states legacy gay uh, uh, magazine, is denounced by Advocate after he comes out for Trump in 2016. And Advocate says, uh, Peter Thiel may sleep with men, but in no way is he gay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like we've all been doing it wrong all these years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, turns out there's something else you're meant to be doing. Uh, uh, anyhow, um, but, 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 but this happens on each of these. You know, uh, uh, when Kanye West comes out for Trump, He's denounced in the Atlantic as no longer being black. And uh, Jermaine Greer, when she doesn't do the trans one in the right order, is denounced as no longer a feminist. And, you know, if, if, if gay men aren't gay uh, uh, and uh, and Jermaine Greer isn't a feminist and, and, and Kanye West isn't black, then what are we really talking about with these characteristics? And I think what we're talking about is a naked political push used disgracefully using identity issues and people's identity as a way to carry out and batter a political project. Do, do you think that there, when it comes to sexuality, there's a particularly perverse version of this, which is last time I had you in studio, the last thing that I asked you about was, um, was that because you're gay, does it make you more sensitive, perhaps, 
to some of these movements? Do we do do gay people do we kind of see things a little bit earlier because we are the other that sort of thing? And you basically said yes, your your skin might be a little bit uh, thinner when it comes to all of these issues because as an other you identify with the other. So in a weird way, the social justice movement can really use gays and minorities in a really effective way because it, it makes it all about them. It, so, it, right. so it's so twisted. Yeah, I, there, there's certainly some of that going on. Uh, but I'm, uh, I, I say, I, I mean, there are several groups you could sort of identify pushing some of these identity issues. And I think there are these people who, who genuinely are just using this as politics, you know, that it's really identifiable now. I think there are, though, I mean, we should credit it, there are a lot of young people in their teens and 20s who who have actually absorbed this worldview, who do actually believe that we live in a uniquely, you know, dangerous time, as opposed to being the most fortunate people in history ever anywhere, and uh, who actually have imbibed these, these ideas that, you know, we live in this on the verge of fascism sort of state and who have very little context with history and all sorts of other things. And I, I, I really, one of the, one of the aims of this book is it's written for those people. And I really hope they read it to try to get them out of that and just suggest a more reasonable view of the situation we're in, you know, because my experience in recent years, I think I say this in the introduction, is that on all of these issues uh, of, of LGBT issues, race issues and, and women's issues, basically my experience in recent years has been it's been like watching a train finally pulling into its desired destination only at the very moment of pulling into the station to suddenly get ahead of steam and go shooting off down <laughs> the tracks and off the tracks and scattering people in their wake. And... It, it, it's almost like at the moment of victory, a load of people decided that victory wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. We see that we see that all over the place. I mean, I think Sweden is probably the best example of that, where they've had this great egalitarian society where men and women are yeah. so obviously equal, and yet the social justice warriors are now trying to re-engineer society so that there'll be as many women engineers. But we know that women just aren't as interested in that. That's not sexist. It just is. Right. Right. I mean, th this um, this stuff is dementing because we're trying to run a set of programs that can't be run simultaneously and are not going to work. And, you know, I mean, we can both wax eloquent about the about the number of contradictions, for instance, in these movements that's going on at the moment. And I mean, the most striking one to me is 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 what I describe as the hardware software issue where I was about to get to it. Take us there. Uh -huh. <laughs> hardware software issue. I, I, I think I, I, um, I, I owe this sort of insight from conversations with our mutual friend Eric Weinstein. Uh, but uh, um, the, uh, the the way I see it is that every rights movement in the late twentieth century discovered that the best way to get sympathy for your case was to say that you had a hardware issue. So gay. Uh, uh, argues that argues against uh, uh, lifestyle choice uh, by saying no. Uh, born this way, uh, move from lifestyle choice to Lady Gaga. And um, you see, I actually say, I mean, I, I'm definitely chucked out of the Church of Gay 
for saying this. But I actually say, and I wrote this before the most recent study emerged in Science magazine, that was the largest study of, uh, of gay men and women to have come out so far. I actually say what that study did conclude, which is that it's, it's almost certainly got a, a significant hardware component, but there's also uh, a, um, a nurture rearing issue. There, there, there are lots of things that are slightly buck the, the, the settled uh, place that we thought or at least a lot of gay rights campaigners got to. But it was understandable to do uh, uh, hardware rather than software because it countered the, you know, the, the sort of religious bigotry, among others, that, that did, you know, lifestyle choice. And uh, But the problem about this is that other movements learned from that. The trans movement in particular learned mm-hmm. from that. And in recent years, in super fast time, has been trying to say absolutely nothing to do with software. This is a hardware issue. Trans people are born trans. And, and as I say, we actually don't know very much about it. But here's here's a dementing thing, if I may, may make the point, which is that um, it, we are pretending at the moment in our societies that gay is hardware, trans is hardware, but being a woman is software. Now, that is dementing. Right. The, so you, you can the, pick the, your you can somehow pick your gender, which we know is a physical reality, but you can't pick your sexuality which science has proven there's at least a conversation to have there. Right. So chromosomes are of no significance, but how you feel is the most important thing. Uh, We're trying to make hardware software and software hardware. And, you know, as I say, I mean, there's no wonder that this, this sort of casualty list of feminists has kept growing because there's a very noble, I give a you know roll call of the, of, of them in the in the chapter in the book. Uh, that it's no wonder that a, a group of feminists kept coming across this tripwire because it, it's incredibly insulting for a lot of women to be told, you know, as Judith Butler and others had started off the the sort of theoretical stuff, and others have picked it up and weaponized it. That you know, being a woman is a matter of performativity, you know, and. Um, as I say, you, you can't run these two programs simultaneously, but we've been trying. And I think that's one of the absolute bases for our dementing uh, manner. I love having family photos around my house, but I raised the bar when I found out about PaintYourLife.com. Paint Your Life turns family photos into beautiful artistic paintings at a really affordable price. So I uploaded one of my favorite photos featuring my favorite girl, my dog Emma, and when my painting arrived, I was truly blown away by the artist's ability to capture every detail from the original photo. So of course, I'll be ordering more as gifts for my family and friends. You really get a work of art because you choose the artist who you most admire and work with them throughout the process until every detail is perfect and there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, the money is fully refunded. Use paintyourlife.com to create a special gift for someone you love or for yourself. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 30% off your painting. That's right, 30% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word Ruben to 484848. That's Ruben, R-U-B-I-N, to 484848. Text R-U-B-I-N to 484848. Message and data rates may apply. And now back to the show. So I want to do a little more on trans at the end, but we'll, we'll go in order of the, of the chapters that you did. But can you just explain, I thought it was really interesting that you separated the gay and trans chapters because, you yes. know, it is LGBT. And I always tell people that me as the G in this case, I have no more insight into what a trans person's life is like than a straight male would or a lesbian would or anything else. These are, these are very different things, but we've lumped these letters together. But why did you intentionally separate it for the purposes of the book? 
Well, I, I think they are separate things. I and mean, I say at one point in the gay chapter, you know, the, the G's don't have very much in common at all with the L's. I mean, never meet particularly, certainly no spaces. No, you know, G's and L's don't, don't really have much in common. The G's and the L's are very suspicious of the B's. And the G's <laughs> and the L's and the B's don't have anything really in common with the T's. And, and they're all stuck in this, you know, Dave Chappelle, rather, uh, just the week before my book came out, did this at a, a rather large audience on the, his Netflix show. You know, they're sort of in the same car, but they're very different destinations. And the thing with the the thing with the T one that is so interesting, which I, I you know, as I say, I'm mean, really been delving into this and speaking to a lot of people and interviewing people and, and you know really trying to work out, as I say, what's actually going on here. Um, and and one of the things I think that's most striking about it and why why I finish on trans is that it's obvious why trans runs against women. Uh, I mean, I, I, sorry, I should take, by the way, I should say, the fascinating thing about this is, of course, the intersectionalists and social justice warriors all pretend that these are like interlocking oppressions. And that if you if you undo one, you will undo the others. Uh, or, or, you know, that you'll create this sort of harmony because women's issues and gay issues and racial issues are all the same thing. Now, now the point I'm trying to make here is that they are exactly wrong because each of these issues actually runs against the other. So, as I say, it's obvious why T runs against women, because it, among other things, it, it, it does things and makes claims about what women are that are highly insulting to a lot of women. Not all, but an awful lot. And then you have the run against gay that trans presents. And I just I think this is. I think this is an absolutely fascinating corner that, that hasn't been gone into enough, which is that, you know, as we know now from studies, uh, young uh, people diagnosed with so-called gender dysphoria, the, the, the stud what studies we have show that around 80 to 85 percent of the of the kids diagnosed with that are going to grow out of it and are likely to become gay men or gay women. Uh, uh, and we all know this from our own experience. And I think that there has been a totally submerged conversation in recent years, which has only happened in private. And one of the, by the way, one of the nicest things about this book starting to be read is the number of people who say to me, Douglas, this is the conversation my wife and I have over dinner. And we say we cannot talk about this outside of this house and so on. Um, so I say my self-appointed role is to say aloud all of the things that everyone else whispers. Uh, but, 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 but you see, but, but I, I know that this conversation has been going on in among gay people uh, in particular, which is, am I totally sure that my, you know, sort of tomboy friend, wouldn't have been diagnosed as actually gender dysphoric. Am I sure that my, you know, male friend who is a kind of camp, you know, teenager, wouldn't, have, if, if it had been now, have been told, actually, you're not going to grow up to be a, a, a happy, healthy gay man. You're going to grow up to be a, a, a woman. And we've decided you're actually a woman. And that is, that is, that is, that hits at the absolute root of a lot of gay men and a lot of gay women. And we've just passed it over as if it's all part of the same happy rainbow coalition. It isn't. It totally destroys the other bits of the coalition.
So, all right, so let's, let's just continue with the, the trans part then since we're in the thick of it right now. D- do you think there's also something bizarre about the amount of energy that the topic trans has? Where so gay rights, you know, you can very easily start, you know, you can go from Stonewall, you can oh. look over the course of a few decades where there were some wins, then it happened in America at least through states' rights and then eventually the Supreme Court and a cultural awareness and all that. And then it was almost as if the second gay marriage happened, everyone was kind of like this, and then trans, which wasn't really being talked about, and you can argue maybe we should have paid more attention to it culturally or whatever, but that it suddenly became like the it thing, and the second it became the it thing, you couldn't take any counter argument whatsoever. Yeah, Time Magazine puts it on the cover in 2015, trans, the the next rights battle. See, again, there are people for whom life is given meaning by having an endless set of rights battles. And once you've done gay, you've got to do trans. And once you've done trans, you've got to get on to non-binary or whatever you've made up today and so on. And uh, and I think that this is people should be intensely suspicious about people who see who try to get meaning in their lives from this uh, St. George in retirement issue. Uh, for, and and uh, yeah, I, I, I lay out why I think trans happened where it did and when it did. But here's the thing. Why trans, I think, is so interesting and why I finish on it is because in some ways it's the one that's betrayed itself most in recent years. It's shown something clearest in recent years. I think uh, Eric on your show once made this point as well, that that you can learn an awful lot by seeing the steps which rights movements take and the order they take them in. Uh, um, The gay rights movement didn't start with gay marriage and uh, gay adoption and gay parenting and surrogates and so on. It started with basic rights, quite understandably, rightly, and it makes all the way along to this bit. Now, that's because incremental steps are are, are, going to be necessary to build a coalition. So one of the things that's become clear with trans in recent years is that they skipped all of the sensible intermediary steps. And what I mean by that is, for instance, they skipped the intersex one, people born with uh, you know, uh, unclear genitalia. This is a really like, awkward uh, subject. It's it's not very common, but it's definitely more common than people think. And uh, the people who have uh, intersex uh, condition are basically, I mean, basically you could get all the sympathy in the world for them because it's it's like um, people with disability. Uh, 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 it's it's like why would you be mean to somebody with this actual hardware thing? I you know like, they didn't choose it. You know, and. And so I think that a sensible place would have been to start the trans thing by starting with that. That's an undeniable hardware issue. So why didn't it? Why did it jump over into sex, among other things? And why did it get to this place where it immediately started saying the big bearded man is uh, 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 with a penis is a woman if he says he is? Because, because, and this is absolutely crucial, because this is not about building a coalition. It is about using an identity group as a battering ram to do something else. And this is really key. So, all right, so let's talk about that something else for a second. So just in the last couple of days, you may have seen this at the LGBTQ forum that the Democratic presidential candidates uh, did here in the States. They asked Joe Biden um, about prisons and Biden said it should be up to the prisoner to decide right. what gender they are, not up to the prison. Now. 
Of course, this is, I mean, this is a truly insane thought, the idea that a man could just walk in, you know, be brought to the prison and say, no, no, I, I wanna go to the women's prison, I identify as a woman. Everyone knows this is bananas. It's a little interesting to me that Biden, who I don't think buys this stuff, just keeps wading into it because he thinks that's his his pass or his path to victory or something. Um, but what what do you think? What do you think he or the Democrats really think they're trying to accomplish with that? When you do something that's so obviously something like that, men can just pick to go to the women's prison. It's so obviously counter to any sort of sane thinking. It doesn't seem like on its face that it's going to help you win. Well, no, but it, it stops you being uh, um, beaten up that day by the small but very vocal group of people who decide every 24 hours what we're meant to think now. I mean, I mean, we, we weren't uh, that one amazed me in some ways and was totally predictable. I mean, we had this row in the UK and people said when when some people said, hang on, is this a good idea? Like, for instance, what about rapists? Um, they say, oh, my God, that's this like transphobic, you know, like uh, unbelievably unlikely thing. We had a case. I mentioned it in the book only a couple of years ago where a male prisoner identifying as a woman raped women in a women's prison in Britain. So it's like we didn't make this up because we wanted to be specially transphobic that right. day. It was a real risk and it happened. And there are real female victims of it. Like, what do you make of that? Why do you weigh that up against, you know, as I say, what we're meant to say today? And I, I just and just quickly, I think the fascinating thing about this is this requires uh, a reasonable adults to say, look, I'm not making anyone like some kind of, you know, I'm not trying to whip up a mob against trans people. I'm not, I'm not trying to, as we always told, I'm not trying to make trans people kill themselves or other people kill them. I, I'm saying I don't think it's wise to, for instance, um, allow a male to self-identify. But the reason we're stuck in this is because we have prevented ourselves from having the conversation. What I lay out in the trans chapter of this book is, so far as I know, uh, the the most careful attempt to, to, to delineate what is reasonable and what is totally unreasonable in the trans uh, uh, debate. Because because we've got to be able to think about this and speak about it. And the fact that Biden and others get stuck in this mess is because we have forbidden ourselves from talking about this or thinking about this issue among many others. Support for The Rubin Report comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home is so much more than a house, it's your own little slice of heaven. That's why when you find the perfect place for you and your family, getting a mortgage shouldn't get in the way. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team by your side through every step of the mortgage process. It's awesome and it's exactly what you get with Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Their team of mortgage experts is obsessed with finding a better way, which means that their number one goal is to make the home buying process smoother for you. Quicken Loans has helped millions of Americans Americans achieve their dream of home ownership, and when you're ready to purchase the home of your dreams, they can help you too. Their team cares about getting you home. That's why J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination nine years in a row and highest in mortgage servicing six years in a row. When you work with them, you get more than just a loan because Rocket Mortgage is more than just a lender. Get started online at rocketmortgage.com slash Rubin, equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. For J.D. Power Award information, visit jdpower.com. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. And now back to the show. 
So are you amazed, despite writing this book, how quickly you can get the so-called feminists of one group to betray their beliefs in the name of some other group. So a couple times you've sort of referenced the confusion now amongst feminists, because now you're gonna have feminists arguing that men should be allowed in women's prisons, you're gonna have feminists arguing that biological men should be allowed to outrace and wrestle women, which we see this happening now all the time. So they're betraying the very cause which, which they uh, self-proclaim to, to be their cause, and, yet, and they do it like that. Yeah, because uh, a little bit of bullying goes a very long way. And we live in a society where a small number of people can bully the most powerful people in the world. And uh, it's an amazing thing to watch this. And I, I just I blame people for being bullied on these things. You know, um, th there is a particular problem, which is that on all of these issues, there is a problem for people who uh, work in the sort of world where they have a hierarchy above them that is vulnerable uh, and most hierarchies at the moment in business in government and elsewhere are very vulnerable actually and we live in this very strange position where a relatively small number of us are actually able to tell the truth as we see it we may be wrong we may try stuff out and be proved to be wrong but a relatively small number of us actually are in a position it seems and it's only because we don't have to answer to and we have no one above us you know there's no one if i misspeak on one of these issues or something you know i, I can't be fired by anyone i just you know look like an idiot if, yeah. if i get it wrong and so on. but but that's fine um but but most people aren't in that position and the extent to which as i say bad ideas have been pumped through the system uh, uh, you know, uh, at a record speed is, is because too few people actually have said, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. I'm not going with that. I'm not going with the big bearded man with a penis going into the women's prison. Are you afraid that if we don't get more of those voices, brave or, or just stupid, whatever it is, the, the, the few people that will talk about these things, um, if we don't get more of these voices and more and more people sort of bow to this loud minority, that ultimately what will happen is that when this thing gets to the breaking point, that good people are suddenly going to become homophobic. Good people sure. will suddenly be transphobic. Good people will be misogynists and racists. In the mo yeah. It would be the most twisted, awful thing, but given the choice between not being able to say what they know is biologically true or suddenly being kind of bigoted against the people that are forcing it down their throats, that decent people are going to break that way. Well, you see, I, I think this is happening on each of the issues. You know, um, I, I say some of this, some of this in the gay chapter because I suppose I can because it's the one card I've got in this. If you want to play that stupid game that they they want to make us play, but you know, I mean, I say there that th there are days sometimes when I read the press where I wonder how a heterosexual feels reading it. Uh, I give a couple of days in the New York Times just to give an example where not where, where the business pages are all about being gay. Uh, the culture pages, you know, and and there's a version of this I do in the chapter on tech, which is very deranging, which is the same thing the tech companies are doing sped up uh, the same thing the Times and others are doing, which is basically using gay, forcing gay down straight people's throats to say, suck it up, love it, take it, you bigot. And I just I loathe this tone. And it's just there all the time. People using gays 
to punish bigots, particularly in America, it's assumed by the press and the Google companies and others that this is to do with um, that. This is basically you're punishing Trump supporters. You're making everything more gay to punish the bigots. We have it in Britain with this sort of presumption that after the Brexit vote, we're sort of the, the public need to have stuff. They need to be exposed as the bigots they are. So when you search for gay couples on Google Images, you get gay couples. But if you search for straight couples, you get force-fed gay couples. I mean, try it out, anyone watching. You'll see exactly what I mean. Why does this happen? It's because they're saying, basically, screw you for being so bigoted as to look up straight couples. Now, you get this in a really ugly way with the race one. And the race chapter in this book uh, uh it's uh, it's so difficult. This is such perilous terrain. But let me just quickly dive into a bit. Yeah, of it. please. See, I, I think that this weaponization of, of people's races at the moment is just the most terrifying one of all. I grew up in uh, London in the 1980s, and London was already pretty diverse, very diverse, actually. And I had people of every skin color at my primary school and so on. I I never thought about it at all. I never thought it was interesting or important. You know, um, it just wasn't a thing. Now, that isn't to say that there wasn't racism in the past. It certainly was. But my experience was basically that we were we were sort of in a colorblind place, or at least getting to a colorblind place. And then this extraordinary thing happens. Again, the bad ideas start in the American campuses and then seep outwards. But you get things like, uh, you know, there's uh, queer studies, black studies, and so on. And these things are basically things to celebrate uh, people who might have been passed over. And to sort of, actually, it's a sensible idea in some ways, to sort of correct uh, uh, um, uh, uh, people being overlooked, uh, as they have been in the past, if they're from some of these minority groups, particularly racial minorities. Now, I think that that, the, that there's an insidious thing that happens with the the creation of so-called whiteness studies. Whiteness studies is the first study of these studies that aims to problematize uh, a, a group. That is that black studies celebrates black writers and others. Queer studies celebrates so-called queer uh, writers and others. But whiteness studies is an attempt to problematize whiteness. And what you get if you try to problematize whiteness is that you have to problematize white people. Now, I think, and I demonstrate this uh, with you know, reference to the pop uh, culture world and among others, I think this is meant that at the point at which we should have sought to become colorblind, suddenly everything has become race-obsessed, color-obsessed. And I think we can already see in the t- in the last few years, we can see one of the results of that, which is that I think that, and I mean, I'm just putting it out there, and I put it in the race chapter at the end, I think that one of the things that's that's come from this, and this is a really awkward discussion, but I've wondered in the last few years, why did IQ start to crop up in the discussion uh subterranean at first and then sort of creeping out you know this as i know this you Mm. know we've got pretty good pretty good feelers and tentacles for i think i think i can say for both of us for the sort of where the debate is at and i just noticed that audience members for instance at at, uh, events i was doing and then sometimes you know in the pub afterwards would sidle up and ask about iq iq isn't my thing i'm not an iq specialist but i i started to become aware what was happening and what i think is happening is because some white people or a lot of white people have been given this, you know, whiteness is a problem thing. And they hear these terms like gammon being used and they hear they hear it. They hear it. They hear basically the rights movement, the racial issue moving past equal and going for a bit to better like gay and like others. They, they 
they see that happening and some white people i think are reaching around for a tool to hit back with mm -hmm. and some people have chosen to use iq to bash back and this we see here the root of a really ugly ugly thing and and isn't the the most crazy part of that and you lay this out in the book actually that when when decent people like Sam Harris, for example, tried to wade into this discussion, as he did with Charles Murray of the Bell Curve, the way that he then gets attacked as if he's, you know, a race realist or, or something like that. That even, even the very minor uh, touch of just trying to talk about something, right. that's going to get you pillared too. Sure, sure. I mean, but I mean, this is this is the most dangerous one. And for America in particular, you know, I mean, I, you know, one of the extraordinary things in recent years has been the way in which, you know, everyone talks about the globalized world and globalization and all that. But actually, one of the consequences of this that, that's sort of not that noted is that we all become vulnerable to the worst bits of each other's culture. And, you know, the American racial problem is pretty unique to America, actually. I mean, this isn't to say we haven't had our own racial problems in in the UK and we haven't had our own uh, racism in the UK, but 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 the way in which the American uh, uh, racial uh, issue has sort of spread globally and the ideas of it have spread globally. I give the example in the race chapter in my book of the way in which some of this has sort of come to Britain and Europe in recent years of specific issues of the of the American experience and and as I say, one of them, one of them that's that, that's just very very worrying to us it should be worrying is the way in which color blindness has been passed over as an aspiration and has actually been turned into a problem and i cite some of the academics who started that off who actually said color blindness is a problem and you get to this place you get to this place that robin d'angelo a professor of whiteness studies in america got to recently where she was actually saying in a public talk that it's a problem when people look at people for their personality, for their character, basically, and pass over or try to ignore the color of their skin and just go, wow, it took you half a century to totally erase the legacy of Martin Luther King and run straight against it. So when you hear these people speak and when you're doing research for a book like this, what what is it that they want at the end? At, you know, after they've posited all their theories, and let's pretend they're all right, and we shouldn't look at the individual, and we shouldn't, you know, judge people based on their thoughts, but we should judge them based, you know, it's, it's the complete reverse of what they're, you know, supposed to be doing. Um, what is it that they want at the end? What what should happen to the five-year-old white child who has done nothing wrong, who forget, is not guilty for his parents' sins or his grandparents' sins, and maybe Maybe all his ancestors had no sins related to anything racial or anything like that. I mean, what is it that they actually want, do you think? Do you think they even think about it in that lens, or it's just about the immediate conquest of the day? I'm, I'm very sort of loath generally to, to, to attribute motive, but I think that the political, the, the political push is very, very strong at this point. I think that this is the thing. Each of these uh, groups... Uh, being used as a battering ram, as I diagnose it, a battering ram to bring something down. What is the something? The something is what we always hear about, the white, patriarchal, cis, heteronormative, capitalist, etc., etc. Now, some people doing this are doing this, and I expose them in the book, 
for completely basically Marxist reasons. And I, I go into the Marxist substructure of some of this because you just can't ignore it. It's spelt out by some of the scholars and writers that I cite. They spell it out. The working class let us down. They didn't provide the revolution. We need to go to interest groups, identity groups, to try to produce the revolution this time. That is undoubtedly happening. It's been one of the things that's been happening for the last 10 years in particular. And that's why we get this fundamental hitting at the root of the society, to present the, the societies like ours as uniquely racist compared to what, compared to where, as particularly transphobic compared to where, and and so on and so on. And now, you see, I think that this this has to be understood, the, the, the ambition of the attempt has to be understood in order for it to be und, undone. Uh, because, the, I mean, you know, one we haven't touched on yet, but it, it is absolutely central to all of this, is this whole discussion of privilege. Mm-hmm. You see, I think the privilege game, and I lay this out in the book, is an unwinnable game. It cannot be done. The whole implicit bias stuff, you know, which again, it's in company after company, uh, you know, and you would have thought that if you're going to roll something out as being the uh, uh, ideal for every society on earth, you'd have thought you'd have stress tested it a bit <laughs> first. Yeah. No, 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 not at all. Now, again, how do you play this privilege game? How do you win it, actually? Uh, is it the case that you can find out exactly where you are in this hierarchy and, and work out where somebody is? And of course not. I right. show in the book how you can't do this. It's a dementing game. And it's not it's not just you, you can't play. You can't win it. So why are we being invited to spend our lives looking at the world through this horrible zero sum reductive lens? Why are we being invited to do it? I think we are being invited to do it by people who know it cannot be won. Not only those people. Some people actually think, particularly as I say, younger people who are being wooed into this actually think that there is value and worth in this. But a lot of people are inviting us to do this because they know it cannot be won. And it will, among other things, demoralize us. And it will. It is a highly demoralizing game. Well, and it's also so bizarrely disconnected from personal reality. So... Chelsea Handler, the comedian, for example, her new Netflix special is all her apologizing for her white privilege. But if she really wanted to apologize for her white privilege, she might have given that slot to a black woman, say Monique or some other black comic. But she doesn't really mean it. You don't really mean to get out of the way. She means it like, I'm going to get mine and I'm going to make myself feel bad for it so that you think I'm really, really great. Exactly. And, you know, one of the one of the things that that really has to be called out in this is that the problem is that some very smart people, as she clearly is, have worked out how to behave in this era. A lot of other people, including some smart people, just haven't had the same opportunities, among others, um, are going to keep crashing and burning against this. So the clever, I, I give the example a, a very. Um, uh, uh, we should spend some time on the heterosexuals because they're you know they're, they're, they're no minority. Um, they're still uh, out there. Uh, God bless them. Um, and they need <laughs> our support, Dave. Yes. Um, you know, uh, um, uh, th- there's an example I give in the book of of how a certain type of male works out how to behave in the post Me Too world. And the example I give is uh, uh, the example of the cuttlefish, which you may be familiar with. The cuttlefish has a 
uh, an ability to uh, the male cuttlefish, because the, the ratio of men to women is, is, is not in the, the male's favor, uh, the male cuttlefish can find a way to make itself more and uh, make itself smaller, to approximate the look of the slightly smaller female cuttlefish, to um, sneak in under the male uh, consort cuttlefish, and uh, so it doesn't look like it's so threatening, get under the female cuttlefish and then have its wicked cuttlefish weigh with her. Now, when I was told this first, I just said, oh, my God, I mean, I have seen this. I know this. I know this male heterosexual cuttlefish behavior. Now, as I say, this is like uh, the Chelsea Handler thing. The cleverer ones work out uh, maneuvers in this area. And I know a lot of I've observed a lot of clever, smart, often well to do uh, heterosexual males in this era learning that this is the thing and behaving in this particular way. I give an example in the book. The moment I heard about this, I said, oh, my gosh, a colleague of mine at The Spectator in London was at the um, uh, Women's March uh, protests after the Trump inauguration and described to me uh, 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 being at a party, sort of, I, I can't quite do the American accent, but the British accent would have been like a load of guys, uh, sort of jocks, and, you know, like standing around with the girls. They'd all been on the march. They were like, yeah, 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 like it was so totally on side. Yeah, 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 like. Fuck Trump. Uh, they were doing <laughs> all this stuff. Not bad, Murray. Yeah. Not bad. Uh, they uh, they they were doing this and uh, uh, all the time, you know. And uh, the, then the last girl in this particular group leaves the circle, and one of the guys, go, Elvis nudges his mate, says, "Oh my God, man! I can't believe how much pussy there is in this room." Okay, they had made themselves like diminutive feminized men in order actually to sneak in and get the women this was pure cuttlefish, cuttlefish. now the, the point is is that some people like the chelsea handler case know that the safest way through this era in for their bit is to play the privilege game to play the whiteness problematizing game and to do all that I'm not interested in chelsea handler's psychosis okay i'm not interested in how these people what i am interested in and really, really worried about is how young men and women are going to get through this era if they are all made to play this game because they can't play this game. And they need to be helped out from this game. They need to be assisted out of it because this has to stop. We cannot have this era go on where people's skin color and sexuality and gender is constantly made into this horrible zero-sum game where women are used against men, men against women, different races. We can't have it. And as I say, the people who play the game, like Chelsea Handler, at the top have uh, an unbelievable advantage. They are playing the game. They've worked the game out. They've nixed the game. It's in their favor for the time being. But millions of other lives are going to be wrecked in trying to understand it. So which way then do you think we should play the rules on this? Because I think this is now suddenly the debate. You know, we've seen Justin Trudeau caught in brown face or black face or whatever you want to call it. This is the same guy who would gladly call, you know, any of his political opponents racists or sexists or homophobes. And we, of course, we know if it was the conservative leader that had been caught like this, Trudeau would have said he has to step down and the rest of it. Do you think then that the clear thinking people out there who don't want to play by these rules in the first place have to apply their rules to them? Or is there, or are you supposed to let it slide 
and, and be better knowing that they would use a trick on you to take you out for the very same thing? What, what do you think tactically is the best way? Well, I think tactically, actually, it's important to use moments like the Trudeau one to make a very important point. You see, I have a chapter, one of the interlude chapters in this book is about forgiveness. I can't get people to focus on this issue, but we have to focus on it. You see, one of the problems, I, I cite a really remarkable essay by Hannah Arendt from the 50s on this. She writes in the 50s, the great problem of, of, of us in the world as human beings was always the problem of action in the world because we could never undo an action once it happened and we had no way of seeing what the consequence of an action would be just like we can't actually tell the consequence of all our words how did we all how did we get around this great horror only by one mechanism which was to have a mechanism of forgiveness because everything else in the world cannot be un everything cannot be undone everything and this makes us terrified unless we have a mechanism and the mechanism is forgiveness now here's the thing in the modern age and this is why i don't like all this talk of young people being snowflakes and so on and so forth no i think it's a completely reasonable completely reasonable reaction to a world in which action has never been more perilous because in the social media world and everything else anything at any point can destroy you utterly Okay, it's not surprising. It's not surprising that people become incredibly fragile about action in the world. But at the same time that action in the world has never been more more dangerous, we spend no time in our societies thinking about the only mechanism that ever got us out: forgiveness. So here's the thing. we can try it on Justin Trudeau, and it's worth doing. The point with Trudeau should not be to play the game back, say, ha ha, we know how you'd have behaved if it had turned out that Stephen Harper did blackface all the time, or or if, you know, Donald Trump turned out to like Justin Trudeau, I mean, who 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 couldn't remember how many times he he'd been caught on camera doing it and, and wasn't sure. I mean, like, like it turns out maybe there were a load of times he just, you know, blacked up for himself at home of an evening. There were <laughs> right. no camera. It seemed, I mean, it seemed to be his thing. Right. But 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 the thing is not to do that and say, ha ha, we'll play it back to you, but to say, okay. Let's stop the game for a moment. Let's just stop this game for a moment. Okay. We don't think that you are a big old racist, Justin, because you had this sort of fancy dress fetish thing for some time. And the thing is embarrassing. Okay. We all make embarrassing mistakes in our lives, uh, prime ministers and uh, plebeians alike. Okay. We're all going to make mistakes. So let's use this as some kind of learning moment. And let's specifically say, we will treat you with the kind of benefit of the doubt that we would like to see you try to do to other people in future. So we're not going to pretend you're a big, horrible racist, but don't you start doing that in future again. Why don't we use this as such a moment? Because I think we've talked about this before. To a great extent, everything in the public sphere in the last decade has reduced to how can I expose my opponent as a big old homophobic, transphobic, racist, anti-female? And this has to stop because we're stopping ourselves from thinking. We're stopping ourselves from thinking. I mean, I give the example in the women chapter here, okay, what could we have been thinking about? How about motherhood? How about motherhood? Whilst we were playing these weaponizing games about which Hollywood actress was paid less millions than she could have been. Whilst we were boring ourselves with that, why did we, as Camille Paglia said, why did we bypass motherhood as a serious discussion? Because I think we all know 
the extent to which women in our society are unhappy with the fact that that question remains pretty badly addressed by feminism. Uh, why an increasing number of girls were basically lied to by the society said, yeah, you can just kind of have a, have a baby at any stage, basically, and didn't, didn't explain the different biological clocks of men and women, or said, you know, well, it's so fine, you can just uh, freeze your eggs, that'll do it. And so, and then end up at a particular point in their 30s, where they rise, hell, hell, this, this actually, I was told something that wasn't true. I, why don't we address questions like that, instead of being poured onto these dementing wastes of time. So one of the things I really want to do is to say to people, not just let's understand what we're being invited to and say no, but identify what we should be doing instead, because we should be doing absolutely anything instead of this. All right, well, that, that is a beautiful closing statement. I will ask you one more question to add on to that, though, which is the same question that I asked you last time you were in studio, and you've sort of referenced this already, but it seems to me that there is a bravery deficit all across the world right now, which is why there's such a small amount of people willing to talk about these things. When I asked you last time what makes you, Douglas Murray, what makes you willing to do this? And you said something to the effect of that you might find out if you stick your toe in the pool that the water is not that cold. You did that in a better British accent than I. Um, can, you just, can you just expand on that a little bit? Because I do think we're getting to a breaking point with the average person, the person that's watching this or listening to this right now, they're ready to break in the right direction. All of the oh. things that you've laid out here for an hour, they're on board. But still, yeah. at the most personal level, they're still afraid. What, what could you give them? You know, I, um, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I say in the introduction to this book that when I was researching this book, I spoke to a friend who was in the British Army, and he introduced me to the metaphor that was on my mind, what would become on my mind. There's a system that the British and American military have. It's called the Great Viper uh, in Britain. And it's a, a, um, a, an anti-landmine device. And you, you pull it on the back of a truck, you fire this big missile, and it has a long cord that, that unravels behind it. And the cord is filled with explosive. And it goes all the way across the minefield. And once it's across the minefield, it detonates. Now, I realize this is what I wanted to do with this book. This is my great viper. The aim of it, is, the point is, it cannot clear the entire minefield, but it can make it safer for people to cross. And my aim of, with thinking out loud, on all of the hardest issues of our time and the ugliest and the most perilous and the most dangerous issues of our time is firstly that it's absolutely fascinating. It's just fascinating. I mean, it's stuff I talk about in this book that I think nobody has talked about before, about why, for instance, there is some always going to be some residual issues about homosexuality and and race and being a woman and more. And the reason I do this is because it's fascinating, but also I want other people, I want, I want people not to be destroyed for trying to think about things that actually are things we should be thinking about. And, you know, in recent uh, uh, years, uh, like you, I've just been, I've been so moved by the fact that, you know, I thought, yeah. the thing you used to say was like, well, young people aren't interested, uh, young people aren't interested in it. I just have found in recent years, I'm sure it's the same with you. I think we've talked about this in private. Young people, people in their teens and 20s are turning out to things. 
and they are just great you yeah. know they are just great they 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 are so sharp and i find them everywhere in the world you know i travel all the time and just a few weeks ago i was in Reykjavik. And somebody on the street comes over and says, hey, you're Douglas Murray. I know you from, uh, from, from YouTube. And this, this, this guy in Reykjavik was exactly at the point in the conversation that you're at in L.A. and I'm at in London mm -hmm. and loads of other people. Are at London. This has got the ability to actually get us forward on issues. And what has struck me and just really moves me is that in recent years, I have I've been asking people in audiences of events I've been speaking at and at events I've been in the audience of, why they're turning out. Because the audiences I experience, I'm sure this is, I know this is the case with, with you and events you do and the ones that Jordan has done, some of the events I've done with Jordan and with Sam and others. We don't all agree on stuff, you know. And and there are other people, you know, I could add to this, who, who we agree with even less. But but the point is, is I started to say to people a little while ago, why, um, why are you here, you know? Uh, and I, I ba you basically get two answers. The first is uh, I'm fed up of sitting in, you know, sitting at, on my own watching uh, YouTube videos. You know, uh, great as that is, I'm not dissing it. Um, and but 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 they say basically I want to I want to meet other people not who agree with me, not who agree with me, but who are thinking about the same things. And so there's a, a turnout of audience for some for for, for some of us that's, that's basically. Uh, 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 rooted in that. But here's the other thing. The second thing they say, and I just, it's incredibly moving, is that they say always a version of this, which is, I want, I want to be near people or in the same room as people who are telling the truth. And, and I want to be near them, to see them, to witness it, to be in the same room, because I would like to tell the truth in my own life. I would like to be able to be a truthful person. And so much in our culture just tells them, lie. Engage yourself in little lies. And you know, that's why I mind about the little lies. I don't think the little lies are just little lies. I don't think the, why can't you pretend there's such a thing as genderqueer and non-binary, and do they them? I don't think it is just a little lie. I think we're being... We're being primed for bigger lies down the road. And all of history suggests that. If you demoralize people with little lies, you can make them have to agree to huge lies. And you see, here's the thing, as I say, is that it's a terrible thing for our cultures that we should end up in this position where people starting off in their lives want need to be near anyone who seems to be telling the truth as they see it. And I'm not being self-aggrandizing on that. God knows I don't have all the answers any more than anybody else does. And I mean, just there's a heck of a lot we've got to do and an awful lot of thinking that needs to be done. But I find this such a moving thing that 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 young people in their teens and 20s, they want to tell the truth to their colleagues, their friends, their, their, their contemporaries. To their boyfriend, their girlfriend, they want they want to live in truth. They want to be exploring truth, and they can, and they just that's one of the great things that 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 I just think we can do in our time. Uh, people like us, and there are just millions of people who many of whom don't have a voice yet, but who will have one, who will have a voice, and who I think just we have such an opportunity now to get off the lies 
and to get on to what we should actually be doing with our lives. Douglas, you are one of the clearest, cleanest, most brutally honest thinkers that I know, and I'm proud to call you a friend. And what I'm going to do is put my fake glasses on one more time, even though I don't need to read the title of the book, The Madison Crowds. The, uh, the link is right down below if you're watching on YouTube. And I thank you, my friend, and I hope that next time we will do this in, in a room together, and then we'll break some bread after. Sound good? It sounds great, as long as we can raise a glass as well. Well, at least one, but knowing us. Not just the bread. Not just yeah. the bread. <laughs> Uh, and you guys can follow Douglas on Twitter at Douglas K. Murray. Thanks, Douglas. It's been a great pleasure.